and welcome to another edition of St. Paul's Letters to America. I'm your program host, uh, Ray Gerard, and you do not have to suffer with just me uh, today as we did la- as you did last week. This week we do have uh, our co-host, Mr. Bob Henicus. Mr. Bob, how are you? Wonderful, Ray. It was a uh, it was a good weekend. I was on retreat with some kids getting confirmed, and a great time to be with those kids. Allow them to understand who the Holy Spirit is and. Wonderful time. I would have loved to have been here with you, but uh, was tied up, and great, uh, great venture. All right. Well, seeing as how you got a good excuse, we'll let you slide on it you know, for, for last week. Thank you ever so much. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, know, I know how much my opinion and, and, you know, my consent and approval means to you. Everything. Right? <laughs> yeah. It means the world. <laughs> I bet it does. <laughs> um, anyway, so this is St. Paul's Letters to America. This is the program that asks, hey, what if St. Paul— were alive. And what if he were walking around and still writing letters? And what if he wrote, wrote, a, wrote a letter to America? If he was able to see and hear what's going on in our country today, would he have something to tell us? Well, how about, I'm not going to, I don't know, should I tell him what we're going to talk about today or should we just go to the letter? Let's roll to the letter. Let's go with the letter. Okay. All right. So, uh, We'll let you. Uh, we'll let you figure it out. Uh, we'll read the letter, and then you see if you can figure out how this might apply to us today. And then we'll compare answers after that. How's that sound? Sounds great. All right. So, um, are you, what, do you want to read the letter? How about you read the letter today? Okay, That's, that seems like a reasonable thing to do. So, this is our letter from St. Paul to America. As a body is one, though it has many parts, and all the parts of the body. Though many are one body, so also Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether white or black, rich or poor, and we have and we were all given the drink of one spirit. Now the body is not a single part but many. If a foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, It does not, for this reason, belong any less to the body. Or if an ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It does not, for this reason, belong any less to the body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I do not need you. Indeed, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are all the more necessary. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we surround with greater honor. And our less presentable parts are treated with great propriety, whereas our more presentable parts do not need this. But God has so constructed the body as to give greater honor to a part that is without it, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the parts may have the same concern for one another. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part is honored, all the parts share the joy. So, you know, we have always said on this program that um, we, we like to examine these letters of St. Paul to see if they contain what we can determine to be truth. And how can you determine whether or not something is true or not? Well, does it stand the test of time? Is it something that in all places, with all people, it would be good? Or, you know, does it say something that some people agree with some of the time and other people don't agree with, uh, you know, some of the rest of the time? I mean, 
what is there not about this that you can agree with? What is there about this that you could, or, you know, in the, in the reverse, what is there about this that you could possibly object to? We are all part of the same body. And if, you know, I'll use a little uh, figurative language here, if a foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, we cannot say we do not belong to the body. So, you know, that, that's figurative, considering that is figurative language, um, what about our country? Can any one of us say, hey, I do not belong to all the rest of us? You know, or I do not belong to this one, this one great body, which is America. Would St. Paul want to tell us today, hey, you're all part of one body? Well, of course he would. And of course, it's a true message. It's a good message. Because if you say, okay, well, we got a choice. Either that's true or not true. What does that mean? So we're either all part of the same uh, body. We're all part of the same America or not. What does that mean? Then we're divided. What did Abraham Lincoln say? Lincoln say a body divided cannot stand. We've, um, we've said, a lot of people have, have said uh, recently that we are more divided than ever before. Is that conceivably, in, in any way, conceivably a good thing? Isn't it better to think of that we're all part of one body? Is this not, in fact, the truth? And can we not all agree that this is true. And here's the other interesting thing about this reading to me. There were three things that, that jumped out to me. This is curious. Indeed, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are all the more necessary. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we surround with the greater honor. Now, <laughs> that may not always be true in the way that affairs have been conducted in this country. But is it still not the truth? Is it not so that the weakest parts of our country, the weakest parts of our, of our body politic, the, the people of this nation, that the weaker ones are the more important? Is that not enshrined in our Bill of Rights, for, you know, for goodness sake? Do we not say that the individual, any one individual, anyone, and I don't care what, what class you come from, you know, what, uh, you know what, what ethnic background you come from, you know, from what skin color you happen to have. I don't care who you are. Um, you are important. Uh, you're important enough that your rights may trump those of the nation or the government of this nation. You may be able to get a, a judgment from a court that the government of this nation has to bow to you because your rights are important. Now, that's there are lots of cases where that hasn't been so, but there are some cases that are. Brown versus Board of Education, for one example. Um, so we respect that idea. We don't have a country built on the idea that, hey, the more powerful are the best parts. Now, a lot of people will say, and that's really what's going to be the subject of this program, um, it's going to be this, this idea of whether or not the more powerful, you know, that there are some that are more powerful that have traditionally or systemically been more powerful and that that's the way it is and that we need to fight against that. It's called critical race theory. Um, and uh, uh, there, there are aspects of it that are beautiful, just simply beautiful. And there are aspects of it uh, in the way that it is practiced 
or put into practice, they're not so beautiful. I mean, if the criticism is, hey, we've got this Bill of Rights and we've got these, these fine words on paper that everybody's important, but the way it's been practiced has been horrible. Well, you could say the same thing about this new movement, or we could raise the same question about the new movement that, that seeks to um, you know, uh, eliminate injustice. Is it going to create more injustice? We're going to get into a lot of that. But here it is in this reading from St. Paul that he wrote to people in a city called Corinth about 2,000 years ago. And except for, let's see, how many did we change? One, two, three, four, seven words. Except for the seven words we changed, uh, which were white or black, rich or poor, instead of Jews or Greeks, slaves or free persons. Um, Except for that, you know, uh, this is a letter he could easily write to America today. You bet, Ray. I... This is a this is a wonderful letter. I, I think of this I think of this reading often, and it usually comes in a couple ways. One, whatever gift each of us is blessed with, there are gifts that we don't have. And the best world is one where we put those gifts together and work together of people that have diversity, yet they come together to make a better product a better idea, a better law, whatever it is, when you have several people with different ideas, if you can figure out how to work together, you've got a better shot. One of the things that when I was working in industry that we talked about was the thought of who do you hire? And we'd chat, and I had buddies, friends that would say, I want to hire somebody just like me because it's easier to make decisions. You get decisions, they go through. It's way more efficient. Engineers are efficient. That's the word we live for. It's way more efficient. You can just get more done. And I had the practice of trying to hire people that were different from me. Because if all I want are my own ideas, I don't need anybody working for me. I can make those decisions on my own. And if so, I, if I get nothing but people working for me that are the same as me, the same decisions get made, and they're going to be wrong because I'm not that clever. I have holes. I don't see things. I have blind sides. And if I don't find somebody that's different from than me, I don't do well. And St. Paul was saying that. He was mm-hmm. saying, don't get just folks that are the same and don't honor just those folks. We need people of every, every race, every creed, every sex, every gender. We need all of that to be our best. And if we disregard people, we're going to be off. We're, going to, we're really going to be off. And he's not just talking about the world. He's talking about the church. He's talking about each one of us. We have got to reach out. And it's a beautiful letter that says exactly that. And it's written 2,000 years ago by a guy that could be talking to us today. I, I, I agree with you. This is one that stands the test of time, and it's absolutely gorgeous. Now, here's the, the third part of this, this letter, uh, and then we'll uh, explain in more detail what we're going to talk about today because we're not going to keep these people guessing anymore. But uh, the third part of the letter that really jumps out to me, that last part that you read, if one part suffer, suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part is honored, all the parts share its joy. He put emotion behind it. If one, su- if one person suffers... We all suffer. If one of us has something good, all of us share the joy. Now, if we truly were able to live like that, wouldn't that be beautiful? Isn't that how it is, for example, in a family? Hopefully. Um, 
you know, he put some real feeling behind it. It wasn't uh, just a concept. Here, what, what, what's good for, you know, a, a social contract? What, what, what's good for, you know, making a society work efficiently? What if it's, if our mm-hmm. society was, was organized by a bunch of engineers? That's um, a scary thought. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but he put feeling behind it. He put heart behind it. You know, what occurred to him was like, if one of us suffers, we all suffer. So that, that part was beautiful. And it's interesting, the, you know, the next phrase, what he, what he, where this letter then leads, uh, a passage just uh, a few verses down says, but I shall show you a still more excellent way. This reading we just gave you was a preface to his hymn on love. Love. Um, that's the more excellent. This, we're all connected, and we can all suffer if one of us suffers. We can all feel joy if one of us feels joy if we have love for each other. You want to get rid of injustice. You want to get rid of uh, some people being left out. You want to get rid of a situation where the weakest ones are the weakest ones in our society are not honored. You want to get rid of all that. You're going to need love. You're not going to be able to achieve um, any kind of lofty goal without it. You're just, you're just not going to do it. Um, we, have, we have a heart. Uh, we're, that's, you know, we're built that way. Um, if you try to go around doing all of these good things just from a pragmatic point of view, it'll never get done. People won't do it. Um, so what... Um, what did you come up with as to how this, what were you thinking of as you read this? Um, what were you thinking of in terms of our society today? Um, you know, how, uh, how things are practiced and how this particular letter, how these truths could apply? Well, how about critical race theory? The Washington Post had uh, an article uh, that came out just very recently called Social Justice for Toddlers. Uh, it was a list of uh, different books and programs where you can start start the conversation on critical race theory early. Now we're going to get into like the parts that are very beautiful about this whole way of looking at things. But uh, let's go through the Washington Post article a little bit first. So the the post the, the person writing in the post said, um, many parents are wondering when the right time is to talk to their children about social justice. Experts say it is never too early. Uh, they uh, refer to some uh, col- uh, professors, uh, psychology professors from Skidmore College, who found or say uh, that uh, the children develop implicit bias as early as three months old, and that by the time they're four years old, they're developing stereotypes of people. Uh, and... Um, you know, for example, oh yeah, there's some studies. They referred to another article which referred to certain studies. Uh, one where uh, there was a 2005 study. There was a, th- and it found that three a three month old baby, a three month old babies can distinguish faces on the basis of race, and they show preferences toward faces of their own race. Well, to me, that's not surprising. I think it's perfectly natural. Um, you know what? You know, one of the features of psychology, one of, one of the findings of psychology is this fight-or-flight response, right? What do you do when you're confronted with something that you're scared of? 
aren't people always scared of, of things that are, are, are uncommon, things that they're not familiar with? Animals have that. You know, they'll, they'll walk up to another animal they don't know and they'll be scared. That's your first natural reaction. Uh, so it seems very natural uh, that, you know, even babies would uh, be more comfortable with what they are more familiar with. Um, there's a landmark study, uh, I guess it was before 2003, it was summarized in 2003. Anyways, 200 children uh, were followed from the time they were six months old until they were nearly six years old. And when the three-year-olds were shown photos of children of different races and asked to choose whom they might like to be friends with, one-third of the black kids chose photos from other black kids, only, only other black kids. So two-thirds didn't. However, with the white students, 86% of the white kids chose photos of other white kids. So that's revealing. Um, and maybe it's simply reflective of the fact that you know, there's, there's more white children around and that black people, black children, would interact with white kids more than uh, white kids would interact uh, by black kids, whether it's on TV or whatever. Simply by virtue of the fact that there's more white people in the country, I don't know. But it is revealing. Um, but again, it, it follows this idea that you know, you're comfortable with what you're familiar with. Uh, there's a 2012 study where white mothers were asked whether or not their children were racist. They all pretty much said, oh, no, 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 no. And then you know, they you know, asked certain questions to their kids and found out, well, yeah, they did, uh, you know, uh, well, for example, many of these kids said they wouldn't want black friends, things of that nature. So these studies are revealing, and they're important. There's a, a friend of mine who told me a story recently where his son, they were living, I think, in Switzerland, and his son, I don't know, the son was five or six or something in that range, and saw a black person for the first time and actually started to cry, according to my friend. Um, he was afraid, you know, and, and my friend was uh, really surprised by this. I mean, he was, he was astounded. I mean, why would you, you know, um, you know, because I did, you know, I mean, known a lot of black people, but this boy hadn't. Um, so it's, maybe it's natural, maybe it's understandable, but it, it exists. Uh, there's a, a woman who wrote um, a story. There's another article that was referenced in this Washington Post article, another article in the Post. There's this woman who says, uh, the first time I heard the N-word was when my second grade teacher at my suburban Philadelphia school used it against me. I had no idea what it meant, but I knew he didn't like me. As a second grader, I knew he didn't like me. And as a six or seven-year-old, I knew he was being mean to me. Even, you know, you're young, you don't know what the word means, but she could tell. I asked my oldest sister, who was in third grade. She didn't know either, so we asked my their father. My parents were livid. I laughed because I could just imagine my reaction. I'd be livid. My parents were livid and contacted the school immediately. The teacher was reassigned. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, just nasty stuff. Um, so, you know, is it, is it, not something that we should uh, seek to 
eliminate? Is it not something we should try to diminish as much as possible? Is it not something we should try to eradicate as much as possible? Of course. If you believe this idea, we're all part of one body. And the less honored, uh, well, no, excuse me, the less, what was St. Paul's words, but, um, you know, the weaker perhaps, or, uh, you know, those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we surround with greater honor. Um, you know, if you believe this is true, that's good. Uh, and you believe that we need to therefore all understand we are all part of the same body and that if one of us suffers, if this little girl in second grade suffers, then we all suffer. If we believe that, then of course we want to do something about this. Okay. Don't think anybody's really going to object to that. If they do, I'd, I'd love to hear them because I think I could win that debate without much trouble. You know, Ray, uh, one of the things that I, I always look back as I'm looking at the scriptures is Jesus and who he is and what he did and how he acted. And Jesus acted exactly this way, right? As Paul's writing about him, he acted exactly this way. He didn't go to the honorable people and spend right, time with them, right, with right. the scribes and the Pharisees and all of those that were in charge and uh, the chief priests and that sort of thing. You would think that when the Messiah comes down, he would hang with the, the leaders of the church. But instead, he had the audacity to hang with prostitutes and tax, tax collectors, collectors and, and the people that were considered the worst. All considered the worst. I mean, you know, you could if you looked at this scripture and then you looked at Jesus' life, you'd say, "Man, this is identical. This is exactly what he was doing." And he didn't care what others thought. He was wanting to be around those who were dishonored. The term is quite often used: the marginalized or those that are pushed out, the lepers, um, those that were truly pushed out of the community completely. He had the audacity to actually go up and touch them and cure them, right? Jesus is exactly or, living this. Yeah, or the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman. Who comes from a different ethnic background or cultural background, and people, uh, you know, there were among those people you were not supposed to associate with if you were a Jew. Well, and why not? I mean, if how would God look at things? He's going to look at things like we're all one body, of course. You bet. Um, okay, so if I think it's pretty unassailable that you know, this is a good thing to be thinking of, that we're all part of this one group, and if one of us suffers, all of us suffer. Fine. Now the next question. What do we do about it? Uh, and that's where the rubber meets the road. Oh, I got another one uh, before we move to that second question. You know, there's, a, for example, one of the children's books. Actually, this is, this is a good way to, to get into this um, um, idea of, of uh, you know, uh, this first idea versus the second idea. Can we all agree on everything and then what we're going to do about it? Um, this will probably hike, uh, you know, highlight that. So one of the, there are several children's books that are recommended in this Washington Post article. One of them is called Not Quite Narwhal. And it's the heartwarming and adorable debut picture, as Amazon.com tells us in the description of the book. Heartwarming and adorable debut picture book tells the story of a young unicorn who was born under the sea to a family of narwhals. A unicorn born to a family of narwhals. Growing up in the ocean, kelp, I guess that was the uh, unicorn, has always, had always assumed that he was a narwhal, like the rest of his family. 
Sure, he's always been a little bit different. His tusk isn't as long. He's not as good a swimmer. He doesn't really enjoy the cuisine. Then one night, an extra strong current sweeps kelp to the surface where he spots a mysterious creature that looks like him. And then he realizes he's not a narwhal and so forth. So, you know, one person, you know, one one person in a whole group of people that are not like him. And so it's a endearing, sweet, I think, story uh, for children. Um, okay. Um, and that, that's much like, you know, Dr. Seuss's book on the Sneetches, you know. Um, and then you've got some other books that were recommended by the Washington Post article. So if we're now going to ask the question, okay, so to get rid of racism and injustice, what do we do about it? What about the answers maybe presented by these books? One is uh, the Anti-Racist Baby Board Book. And in the description of this on bookshop.org, it says, from the National Book Award-winning author of Stamped from the Beginning on How to Be an Anti-Racist comes a fresh new board book that empowers parents and children to uproot racism. I'm adding the emphasis on those words. Uh, with bold and thoughtful yet playful text, Anti-Racist Baby introduces the youngest readers and grown-ups in their lives to the concept and power of anti-racism. Again, emphasis being added by me. It refer- I mean, the words that stuck out to empowers, uproot, power of anti-racism. There's another book that uh, is highlighted called Woke Baby. And in this one, there's a picture of an infant with arms raised, and the hands are in the form of fist. And there's a description, again, on bookshop.org. Woke babies are up early. Woke babies raise their fists in the air. Um, That's, I think, where the the difference comes. In advocating for social justice, a lot of people take the view that you have to fight. And the question then is, is that the better way to do it? You know, it's, it's a very familiar issue to me. It's the same issue. I lived through the 1960s, and I do remember most of them. I was too young to be, you know, stoned um, when I was living in the 60s. But anyways, um, you know, I was old enough to understand the difference or hear about the difference between Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. One man was an advocate of peace. He was a man of God. He was a minister, a Christian minister, hounded by the FBI <laughs> as, as Christians sometimes you know, do get persecuted, especially if you're the wrong skin color, I guess. Um, but uh, one was a man of God, a man of peace. And the other person was somebody who was distraught and tired of being picked on and, and tired of, you know, of being discriminated against just simply by virtue of his skin color and wanted to fight back. I mean, it's a very common, natural human reaction. That's why Christ was so radical. If somebody strikes you on one cheek, turn the other. It's not the normal response. It's not easy to do. Sometimes we will do it and grit our teeth in the process. It's hard to do. And that's why Christ was so radical, and that's why he was such important. He's so important to have as a model. And he was the model that Martin Luther King took. Um, 
So out of those two choices, which would we prefer? And the issue today is, if, for example, you take out of this Washington Post article, not the, not the, you know, the, a sympathy for the problem. Hey, if one of us suffers, we all suffer. If the Washington Post article, uh, you know, doesn't really, well, if it teaches you that, but then it also says, hey, we've got to fight, then we're not getting the rest of St. Paul's. If that's the message, then we're not getting the rest of St. Paul's letter. Because what does St. Paul say? A foot cannot say to a hand, I'm not part of you. I'm not part of the same body. We are, we are, we are different. We are separate. You can't say we are separate. Because why? Because we're not. We're all part of one. Um, and so the question to me is, we have to be very careful. If you're believing that we have to teach anti-racism to children as, as young as three months, you have to be very careful how you do it. Children are very impressionable at an early age. If you teach we need to fight, if you have woke babies with fists in the air, boy, um, you know what kind? What are they going to grow up to be? Well, Ray, there's there's no doubt. I I think of some of the greatest leaders of all time. Abraham Lincoln did not want a battle. He made the comment about a country divided, right, and. He was advocating peace, and he eventually got drug in and ended up having to deal with that. But he did not want the country to split up. He wanted us to stay together and figure out how to handle this and work it out. Martin Luther King was brilliant, and he talked about a world. He talked about a dream. He talked about a world where there was not prejudice, and he was trying to get people to think about it. But he didn't want that same pain that others are looking for. Mahatma Gandhi was trying to separate from the English that were overpowering India and taking advantage of them. And yet he didn't say do that with guns and ammunition. And he made it occur without. He made it occur through peace, through love, through caring, right? All up and down history, there are people who have made the choice. And it is the right choice to make. Jesus himself. Now, for many of these people, this doesn't end well. Martin Luther King was gunned down by an insane man in Memphis, if I remember right. Jesus, <laughs> yeah, Jesus, Jesus Christ was crucified in a horrible death because of what he did. But he was defending the right way, and he was defending it with love, as all of these individuals are. And that's really what St. Paul, I think you're making a marvelous point. That is what St. Paul is telling us. You can't hate and still be a part of the solution. You have to love to be a part of the solution, and you have to take people on. Because if not, you're going to get to a point where you got to decide, do I love to fight more, or do I, I love to make this correct? And that's a difficult choice to make for somebody that's in a fight. So, um, you know, you bring up something that's very interesting to me. Um, I laughed when you said... Uh, hey, if I remember correctly, you know Martin Luther King was was shot mm -hmm. and gunned down in a in a Memphis hotel motel, and I laughed. That happened to me once before when I was talking with a person of color, and I laughed at something that she said, and she got, you know, she took great offense. And I explained to her I laughed because I thought what you were saying was so unquestionably true 
that, I mean, the way she said it was like, you know, and some people don't agree with this. And I laughed because it's like, well, how could you not agree with it? Of course, everybody would agree with that. And so when you said, you know, um, you know, if I remember correctly, that's the phrase that I was laughing at. It's like, how could you, how could we not? And of course, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I don't mean to, you know, uh, criticize you in any way, but how could we not remember, and we all do remember, anybody who was alive at the time or have read about it, you know, the assassination of Martin Luther King. So the laugh was, how could anyone not know of or remember the assassination of Martin Luther King? It's laughable to think that you wouldn't. Okay, that's how I meant it. That's how I intended it. When I got into this, when I... It reminded me of a similar situation, like I said, when I was in a discussion with a person of color, and I laughed at something along the same lines, and I got in such trouble. And then so I explained to her what I meant. The response I got was, that doesn't matter. What I intended did not matter. And that's interesting as well. Um... Because what the Bible tells us, what St. Paul tells us in other writings, is that you know there was, an, there was a covenant in the Old Testament that had 612 rules that you had to follow in order to be a good, you know, faithful servant of God. Um, but all you really needed in the New Testament with the New Covenant was one rule. You, and that, that rule was, was written in your heart. And he, he even's making reference to it in the letter that we gave right now. If one person suffers, we all suffer. If you, I will show you a still more excellent way. If you have love for, for other people, you will have empathy for other people. You will treat other people as you want to be treated. It all comes together. Um, and so it really does matter whether you care for other people. If it doesn't matter what you intend, then it doesn't matter what you care for other people. But what you, whether or not you care for other people is the only thing that really matters. It's all a matter of love. It's all love. So anyways, um, it's interesting because um, this is part of critical race theory, that what you intend, what you have in your heart, whether or not you have love or anger, doesn't matter. It's just what somebody perceives. If they think you're a bad person, then they're justified. If they think you had a bad motive, they're justified. They could be wrong that you didn't have that motive, but they're still justified. I mean, if they make a judgment about you, and the judgment is not consistent with what you meant, but they're still right, what is that kind of thinking other than where we have to be divided? What does that say if it doesn't say we have to be divided? What if you say, hey, you know, I didn't mean it. I'm sorry. You know, I didn't mean it that way. And the other person says, oh, now that I understand that, okay. Well, now you come together. You were apart. One person felt, you know, uh, resentment. One person felt offended. The other person, you know, uh, was felt perhaps uh, similarity, felt uh, agree, agreement with this other person, but through some misunderstanding, they were separated and apart and divided. And then once the explanation is given, then they can come together. Oh, okay, fine. Well, that's okay. But if you, but after the misunderstanding is then explained away, 
If you say, no, I want to I hold on to the misunderstanding, how is that anything but we need to stay divided? Why is that a good thing? You know, Ray, one of the things that worries me is, as you're talking is how difficult communication is. Um, it's a difficult task. And if we are not allowed to explain further, to continue to explain what we truly meant, we've got a problem. My dear departed father, who died just a couple of years ago, had a favorite phrase because he, like myself, is an engineer, and all of us naturally have a little trouble with communication. That's not our first skill. And he would say that communication problems can be one of two. It can be either wax in the ears or mush in the mouth. <laughs> and both are correct, right? You could hear it wrong or you could say it wrong. Right. And if you eliminate it and say that the only problem is you and what you said as opposed to me and what I'm hearing, you, you've made a grave mistake, at least according to my dear father. And I, I'm, I'm with him. You have got to let people expand because communication is so tough. You've got to let them tell the story that they're really thinking about and leaping to conclusions is a huge mistake. You've got to let people talk just a, just a bit. I think I know what people on the other side of this would say. They would say, well, we don't want to hold on to uh, this divided feeling. But what we're trying to tell you is that you need to understand better. You need to become less ignorant. You need to understand better. Okay. I mean, I get that. But the way it works is then you have to think you know, how we, we say you're supposed to think. Um, and so it, it does become one-sided. Um, so I think they would take exception to the fact that, hey, we don't want, you know, that, you know the idea that, you know, we want to hold on, you know, to this, to this misunderstanding. I think they would take exception to that. They want to get rid of the misunderstanding, but they want it, you know, so that one so the, you know they want other people to understand how they feel and how they they feel hurt, which is, again, what St. Paul says. Hey, if one person suffers, we all suffer. We need to feel empathy, and that part is true, and that part is true. But to say that it doesn't matter what's in your heart means that they can still feel justified. They can still feel anger against you. If you were to say. You know, hey, but I didn't mean it. I, you know, it was that wasn't what I meant at all. And the anger goes away. Now you're not divided anymore. But if it's like, well, you need to come around. You need to do this. You need to do that. They're still hanging on. Then, then the anger hasn't gone away. And the offense, the resentment hasn't gone away. But the question, why should the resentment even be there if the person never really meant it in the first place? So I think the net result is, you end up staying divided. Um, so, anyways, but the funny thing is, the Smithsonian had uh, an exhibit. The Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture um, unveiled guidelines for talking about race, and they had this big sort of uh, uh, display and such. And um, it talked about you know, it, it, was, it was entitled Aspects and Assumptions of Whiteness, White Culture in the United States. White dom and it, uh, it, it proclaimed white dominant culture of whiteness refers to the way white people and their traditions, attitudes, and ways of life have been normalized over time and are now considered standard practices. And since white people still hold most of the institutional power in America, we have all internalized some aspects of white 
culture, including people of color. And so we need to get rid of these. Uh, what are these aspects of white culture that have been internalized? Well, uh, individualism, self-reliance is one. The nuclear family is another. Emphasis on the scientific method is another. Objective, rational thinking, cause and effect relationships, quantitative emphasis. These, these are white culture things that need to be, I guess, in some sense removed. Objective, rational thinking. Um, I mean, if you get rid of rational thinking, you're left with irrational thinking. That's a, that's a serious, uh, we don't have time to go into all these things. Work ethic, hard work is another one. So we're not supposed to work hard. But what's, what's, the, what's the flip side? Being lazy, that's okay. Uh, religion, uh, no tolerance for deviation from the single God concept. I don't think that's true at all. Uh, of course there's tolerance for people with other beliefs. That doesn't mean that you can't still believe in a single God, but, you, but believing in a single God does, is not mutually exclusive with the idea of tolerance. But anyway, uh, wealth equals worth. I don't think the single God theory is practiced by Christians. I don't think Christ would agree that wealth is, is wor equals worth. Uh, respecting authority, that's another problem. So we're not supposed to respect authority. We're supposed to, well, I mean, that, you know, you're gonna, if you don't respect authority, what, you don't, your parents, uh, the police, uh, teachers in your school, um, you know, I mean, is that not going to create anything but problems? Um, delayed gratification is, is another aspect of white culture. So now we're supposed to have immediate gratification, what, all the time? Uh, uh, the belief that tomorrow will be better is a white cultural account. So tomorrow, we're supposed to be depressed and think tomorrow is going to be worse. I mean, this is part of what's in here. Um, and along, and there's more. There's a lot more. Be polite is a bad thing, apparently. But among all of these things is another one. Intent counts. That's an aspect of white culture. So it's clearly stated that this idea that intent counts, what's in your heart counts, whether you have empathy and sympathy for, you know, for other people. If you believe that because this other person suffers who's not like me, that I am suffering, that I need to suffer, or that I got to feel that pain because we're all part of the same culture. Um, you know, uh, you know, if 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 I'm going to believe in that, then I got to believe in ten counts, um, because it's all it, it's love. How how can I feel the other person suffering without love? And if intent doesn't count, then it's not about love. I mean, this is inconsistent. When you say the idea that intent counts is bad, it, what's in your heart is not what counts. What's in your heart? We often say what's in your heart. People, you know, what's the, what's the one emotion that's most associated with the heart? Love. All right? St. Paul says if, if one suffers, we all suffer, and then goes into his hymn on love. It's connected. If we feel empathy for another person, if we feel their suffering, it's because we feel love for them. But if intent doesn't count, then what's in the heart doesn't count, then love doesn't count because your empathy for that other person is all a measure of how much you love that other person. If you deny intent counts, you deny love. This is inconsistent. It cannot stand the test of time. It will only lead to factions and disunity and hate and increased animosity between people. It would divide people. This is not the answer. We had two questions. Should we have racial injustice? Should we be, you know, should we, or should we feel love for one another? The answer to that is an unqualified yes, we should feel love for another. The second question, what are we going to do about it? Well, let's all feel 
animosity towards one another until somehow some later point in time we get it all fixed? Why not now? You know, Ray, one of the things that you just think through for a second makes a lot of sense, at least for me, and that is quite often we have many people that want to be judged and want people to understand their intent yet they don't understand anybody else's intent. They take only words that they hear as what someone else is doing, rather than giving someone time to explain what their intent is or their understanding. And so I think if we say, it's, it, please listen to my intent as an individual, we need to do the same thing, which is to honor others and allow them to explain themselves and explain their intent. And I, I, I think that's what St. Paul is saying. It doesn't matter that I'm a foot, right? I need to be interested in the whole. I need to be honored as part of the whole, and I need to be interested in the whole. And if we don't do that, if we don't give them that honor, if we push them away because we don't like what they say and we disagree with it, we're going to be split as a body. We're not going to do what St. Paul's asking. We're going to be completely split. We've got to figure out how to take care of and love others. And that's what you're saying. That's exactly the point that you're making. And we are missing the boat by not taking care of one another. Now, you can think of intent as something of the head. It's what you think. It's in your head. But if what you're talking about is what you intend towards another person, whether you intend offense to another person, whether you intend agreement or kindness to another person, that's not in your head. That comes from the heart. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, what is the problem with um, dividing people? There is an article in The uh, Federalist. The Federalist is, a, is an online series of articles. It's a website which has a collection of articles, usually from a conservative perspective. Uh, this one particular article was written by... Uh, da, 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 Stella Morbito, uh, and it is entitled, Critical Race Theory is a Classic Communist Divide and Conquer Tactic. Wow. I don't know. Okay. Is she right? Well, let's see what she has to say. She says, identity politics is a tool to sow hatred. hatred. Every person of goodwill, goodwill, love, right? If you have love in your heart, every person of goodwill, this, you know, goodwill is that most often hear that, you know, in uh, Peace on Earth, Goodwill to Men, Christmas, Christmas time. time. Christmas time. Every person of goodwill should know that judging people based on their physical characteristics is cruel and wrong. I think that was our first question on this program, and everybody you would think would certainly agree with that. Um, she says, however, the interesting thing is there's many parallels between critical race theory and the Bolsheviks. Uh, who, uh, or uh, the people who, uh, you know, began the, uh, the Soviet Revolution back in 1917. Um, and uh, she talked about the fact that um, they had a problem in the Soviet Union when they were trying to institute uh, communism. And the problem was with the peasants, those less honorable people in, in society, the weaker parts of society. Uh, people were considered, no, no, to use St. Paul's terminology, we, we should, I think, more properly say the people that were considered 
less honorable. They're not less honorable per se, but they were considered by others less honorable. Anyways, uh, the problem with the peasants was um, they didn't want to give up their land. They wanted to institute um, you know, government-owned farming. And they liked their little pieces of land. The peasant farmers tended to be overwhelmingly religious, traditional, and family-oriented. Bolsheviks didn't like that. So Joe Stalin came up with an answer. The Komsomol. It was the Communist Youth League. Uh, yeah. Hitler had a, a, the Hitler Youth Hitler League. Youth. Everybody's got these youth leagues that, you know, that when they want to spread some propaganda, right? Anyways, uh, communist, the Komsomol, uh, they were, their objective was to incite division. And uh, they turned formerly peaceful neighbors against one another. There's a book called The Whisperers, Private Life in Stalin's Russia, written by Orlando Figes. Figes? F-I-G-E-S. Anyway, he writes, um, The villagers had never heard such propaganda in the past, and many were impressed by the long words used by the leaders of the Komsomol. At these meetings, the villagers were told that they belonged to three mutually hostile classes. The poor peasants, who were the allies of the proletariat, the middle peasants, who were neutral, and the rich or kulak peasants, who were the enemies. The names of all these peasants in these different classes were listed on a board outside the village school. Uh, Ms. Morbito finds this interesting. She thinks that these are the same three divisions we see today. According to critical race theory, there are the victims, there are the oppressors, and that there are the neutral ones who become allies of the victims. Um, she says, note the reference uh, to the Komsomol using impressive long words. Today, these long words, long, quote, long words, are, you know, big sounding ideas like systemic racism, intersectionality, and right, white fragility. And she says, you know, it's interesting, too, there's another parallel with the doxing, doxing and canceling that goes on. It's, you know, you post somebody's name on the Internet, and then you have to hold them up to scorn and ridicule. That's the same as writing uh, the list of names of these people on a big board and posting it in the village. Only this time, the big board is big tech. Um, the whole idea, Ephesians also writes, the villagers had no previous conception of themselves in terms of social class. They had always thought of themselves as one peasant family, one body, one community, one nation, one, one, one. Um, and the objective was to divide them, make them think of themselves as people that needed to be opposed to one another. And that's what we see over and over again. We've, we've talked about stories where kids come home from school after being ex exposed to this kind of teaching, and they say, Mom, I didn't know I was a racist. Um, you, know, I, you know, I mean, and these are biracial kids. There are instances where the, these kids, you know, come from a mixed, you know, how could they be, you know, racist? And then they come home and say, well, I'm racist. Um, Ms. Morbido writes, that what's being done is a mirror, images, mirror image of the segregationist in Jim Crow days. It's interesting. We are now going back to segregation. Um, and she also writes that, you know, this, this, this 
this teaching uh, that we have to uh, be divided from one another is has a lot in common with what's known as predatory alienation. Predatory alienation is something that occurs when uh, usually some kind of sexual predator will split a child off from its family and somehow convince the child that it that the child should hate the parents or that the parents hate the child and you know the predator will use this in order to split the child off and then you know uh, you know enable the predator to take the child away you know uh, convince the child to want to what you know run away and then the predator can do what predators do um Anyways, uh, there's a definition of predatory alienation which says that it is purposely, purposefully disrupting an existing relationship, often through the use of deception, in order to isolate an individual uh, from the people that he or she trusts for the purposes of exploiting, controlling, or taking advantage. I mean, you know, that's what we can be. That's what we can be a witness to right now with this. You've got like the. People, these peasants in the Soviet Union, they didn't know that they should, you know, be split off from, uh, from one another. They thought they were all one. And, you know, they were being, they were being taught the contrary. So, well, they're being taught the contrary to serve another purpose. Um, so they, their farms could be taken and farming could be collectivized and so forth. There was another purpose. It was not about the class differences. It was about this purpose. Um, well. Uh, you can argue about whether or not it was about the class differences, but there was a there was an ulterior purpose to doing that, um, you know. And are we not seeing? And that could be what's going on today. Um, and uh, well, we're you know we could we could talk on and on and on about this, but I think perhaps uh, perhaps it's time to you know leave it leave it there for the moment. The fact still remains. Hey, you know, uh, if one suffers, do we all suffer? Yes. What do we do about it? Do we fight or do we show love? Um, if you listen to St. Paul, uh, besides the reading we gave you today, you might want to consult his hymn on love. His answer would simply be a very you know, plain one. Love. Now. Everybody. Anyway, um, that's our, our program for today. We hope you've you know, found it interesting, perhaps a little, hope, perhaps a little provocative. Uh, we hope you'll join us again. Uh, until the next time, we're going to leave you with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, let us take our, our cue from not only St. Paul, but your Son, who as he was dying on the cross and saw people killing him, he forgave those that were killing him, those that were going by and making jest of him. He loved all, even to a point of death death on a cross. Allow us to love first, to then begin to sort out the difficulties, but start that we love all that are around us. The love of God is unimaginable. We don't understand how wonderful and loving it is. And for us, we need to pursue your love and allow the rest to come as it will. Allow us to have that strength, especially during this Easter period, this Lenten and Easter period, and allow us to truly love others with all our heart and soul. We pray all this through the wonderful and glorious name of that Son that died on the cross, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, Son and the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.
Until next time, God bless.